We talked last week about how a lot of people have misguided notions when it comes to the will of the Lord. We talked about how so many think that God's will is inferior to our will, when in fact it's so superior. God wants better things for you than you want for yourself. And God knows by his foreknowledge, because of his compassion and his concern for our best and his own reputation is on the line when it comes to his children. We also hold the misconception that we can inadvertently miss the will of God. I can't even tell you all the women that say to me, what if I miss the will of God? What if I married Herman and I was supposed to be with his twin Harry? I've had people actually, not those names, names have been changed to protect the innocent. But I've actually had people think that they've missed the will of God because it, it got difficult or it got hard. But the will of God is not like a train we need to catch. And we're not sure what train it is or what platform it will take off from or what the timetable is. When we lived in England, there was a place called Clapham Common. And I would go there and I would catch a train um, uh, home from Clapham Common or you know, to Richmond Station. And I remember getting there and I was talking to a woman. She was walking me all the way to the platform and I was at the right platform. I got to the right platform, but I was a little bit disturbed by what she was telling me, a little bit distracted. So when the first train came up, instead of reading where that one was going, I just jumped on. It's a train, I jumped on. Well, we were living in England and I wanna tell you that the phone numbers in England have a lot of digits. So I never memorized our phone number. It was when cell phones were this big and we would give it to one person that day and I was not the person that had the cell phone that day. So I jump on this train only to realize that it is speeding past every place that's familiar to me. Like I was on the fast train going somewhere in England that I'd never been before with no way, I didn't even know my address where I was living, we just moved to communicate to family where I was. I was all by myself or who I was. I, I, I didn't know. And so here's this train and I just begin to pray. It took me over an hour out of my way, fast. <laughs> it took me a fast hour out of my way. I had no money and I was just praying, Lord, I don't know what to do. It stopped and I just felt the spirit of the Lord say, get off, walk across the bridge on the other side and catch the first train. And I forgot to read that train too. But I just jumped on and hallelujah, the train took me quickly to a place that was walkable to the place I was staying, living. But you know, that, that's not how the Lord's will is. Like I was at the right platform. I just jumped on the wrong train. You cannot miss the will of God unless you want to, unless you want to. I think about how when you go to the car wash, and I don't know about you, but when you have to line up your wheels with those metal grids, and those guys are always like, back up and I'm like, I'm trying so hard, but I can't see the metal grid, you know, and they're trying to direct and they're kind of like, you know, like, you're this woman, what are, what are we gonna do? So I, 
it's so hard, but that's not, the will of God is not that hard to align your life with. It's not like those car washes. Other times we conclude that our deficits or struggles, drawbacks, rejection and quarrels are signs that we are outside God's will instead of the very goats that God is using to get us in his will. In Psalm 23, 4, David talks about God's staff. He said, your rod and staff comfort me. Now, a rod was only used as a weapon against a wolf or a predator, never against the sheep. The sheep were never struck by the shepherd. But the shepherd would use the crook to draw the sheep uh, back or help lift him if he fell over a ravine. And then he would use the other part of the staff. He would hold it out so that the sheep couldn't veer off the road. You know, sometimes when you're on the freeway and you've got your GPS and it's like, stay on the 405, stay on the I-405. And you're like, why are you telling me this? You think I don't know, like every 10 minutes, stay on the, and it's because the 605 is there and they just don't want to take any chances with you. The GPS does not trust you. I'm just saying, okay? But that's what would happen. It would keep the sheep from taking that other path. He would just stick it out so that the sheep would just follow, especially at night. He would lean into the rod to know where to go. The rod also would gently prod the sheep to go a little faster, tap, 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 to to move over to the left, to move over to the right, keeping the sheep right in the will of the shepherd. God wants us in his will more than we even want to be in his will. In fact, it tells us in Psalm 23, 3, that he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. In other words, God's reputation is on the line when it comes to you. He wants our lives to testify of his goodness, of the goodness of the shepherd towards the sheep. And God utilizes all sorts of means to get us in his will. And again, you cannot miss the will of God unless you purposely, defiantly, decidedly rebel against it and do not. It takes a deliberate act of your will to be out of God's will. In our lesson this week from Genesis 25 and 26, we see how God guides Rebecca and Isaac into his will using departures, delays, deficits, dilemmas, difficulties, his directives, denunciation, disagreements, and discoveries. Now, when I can get all these like that, I know it's the Holy Spirit. Too often we conclude that the very instruments that God is using to get us perfectly centered in his will are the devices that are telling us we're out of the will of God. You know, we think because we pulled a muscle in our back, oh, what did I do wrong? Don't we, don't we go right there? What have I done wrong? Instead of, Lord, how are you trying to direct me? What do you want me to do with this pain, with this place? How do you want to direct me? 
In Genesis 25, we find that once Isaac was married, Abraham remarried a woman named Keturah, and she bore Abraham six sons. Can I just personally say I'm so disappointed in Abraham getting married again? Why does he feel the need to get married at 135 again? I will say this, Nancy Sylvester, her father remarried at 90 to a woman in her 80s who had never been married. So don't give up, single women. The fact that Abraham had these six more sons shows that the issue of barrenness was not Abraham's, but Sarah's. It was never about Abraham having a son, but having the son of covenant, the son of promise, the miraculous son, which could only come through his covenant wife, Sarah. God had chosen Sarah just as much as he chose Abraham to be the covenant mother of the son of promise. So Abraham sent all these sons to the east with provision. Perhaps he sent them to the land that he had come from, to his relatives, uh, maybe even to you know, the land of Nahor. And he did this while he was still alive. He determined that these other sons would not be competing heirs with Isaac <clears throat> to the promises of God. Abraham knew that God's will was that Isaac alone would be the son of the divine covenant and heir to the land and all the promises of God. The will of God will often involve sacrifice, a giving up, a sending away, a separation, a departure. Though this can be emotionally wrenching to watch others leave, I have found when I try to hold what God is requiring of me, I only harm the thing I'm holding cause self-injury, and delay the inevitable. Ishmael, who is already experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises, and Isaac then bury Abraham, another departure. Abraham dies, and he's buried in the cave at Hebron, where Sarah was buried. So we see that God used departures in Isaac's life to begin to direct him into his perfect will, the departure of his stepbrothers, the departure of his beloved father. The writer of Genesis then takes us back in verse 19 to a time about 15 years prior to Abraham's death, a time when Isaac and Rebekah, the chosen wife of Isaac, the one God handpicked, had been barren. Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah have been waiting for over 20 years for a descendant that will receive all the promises of Abraham. So 35 years prior to Abraham's death, that was when Isaac married. And then they waited 20 years. Isaac prayed for Rebekah. Now, I love the fact that he did not, he did not look for an Egyptian maid. He prayed and prayed and prayed. I wonder when he started praying. After one month, after one year, after three years, after five years. I wonder what his prayer sounded like. If it started very calm, Lord, please. You know how we start in prayer? Lord, just please do this. Lord, would you heal my back? Lord, would you heal my back? Lord, would you please heal my back? You know how it gets stronger and stronger? I wonder if Isaac's prayers 
became more serious, more, more um, strong. I wonder what he said. I wonder how long he prayed, the duration of one prayer, the length of his prayers. At some point, as they waited, Isaac began to entreat and then plead, because the word is plead. Not just pray, but he pled with the Lord for Rebekah. The Lord granted his plea, verse 21, and Rebekah conceived. Here was God using Rebekah's barrenness to elicit the attention of Isaac and Rebekah. God will often use deficits to get our attention. We usually look for natural solutions to our problems, but it is when we realize that we need divine help that our soft prayers turn into entreaties and pleas. When God has our attention, our full attention, he can direct us. We read in John 6 that it was only when Philip realized the greatness of the deficit, 5,000 hungry men, no bread, no resources nearby, no money, no time, that his attention was riveted on Jesus. And he was ready to obey and receive whatever directives Jesus gave him concerning feeding the people. As we move on, we realize that God also used the delay. In Rebecca and Isaac's life, had this pregnancy happened right away, would Rebecca have sought the Lord when the pregnancy got difficult? Or would she have thought, oh, this is just natural. This is just what happens. But because she knew this pregnancy was a direct answer to prayer, when her womb just didn't feel right, she went to seek the Lord. Now, Rebecca feels that something is not right in this pregnancy. She's waited 20 years. And something's not right. It's before the times of sonogram. I don't think I needed to tell you this, but it's before the times of sonogram. And she has no idea what she's carrying. Can you imagine? I, I know with one of my sons, I think it was his elbow, and I would watch just this thing move across my stomach, back and forth. But she's feeling all this uneasiness, all this activity in her womb. And I think people are saying, oh, it's her first. She's waited 20 years. Of course, she's a little nervous about this. But Rebecca is so serious. She's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and seek the Lord. She specifically goes and seeks the Lord. It's almost like, Lord, I am not moving till you tell me what is going on in my womb. Have you ever had a place like that? Lord, I cannot move until you tell me exactly what is going on. Why these circumstances? You know, so many times we just try to persevere. But when your alarm is going off, your dog is sleeping in bed with you, and your back is out, and your daughter's having false labor, you have to say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me right now? What am I missing? What do I need to see? You have got my full attention, Lord. What do you want to say to me? Don't you love that the Lord always has a word? That he spoke to Rebecca? Remember, at this point, Isaac has not had any direct encounters with the Lord. 
He's received the promises. The others have been sent away. He knows the promises, the promises that were given to his father Abraham, but they have not been repeated to Isaac yet by God. They have only been told him by his father. Though he's received the promises of God, the inheritance of Abraham, the beautiful wife that he loves, an answer to prayer with the pregnancies, he has not had a direct encounter with God as Abraham did. But Rebecca hears the word of the Lord. She hears it even before her husband does. I don't know what that means, but I like it. Verse 23, God speaks to Rebecca and says, two nations are in your womb. In other words, you're having twins. These twins will be two different nations. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It is because of this dilemma that Rebecca seeks the Lord and receives the direction and the answer on what is happening and what God's will is for the future. God uses dilemmas, those places of uneasiness that we just can't shake to bring us into his plans and purposes. Pamela Markey, who's a, um, she's head of our Bible college in, in Hungary, amazing woman. She and her husband um, went to the Ukraine as missionaries with all their children. But when she first married her husband, George, she was told that she would never, ever have children, that it was just, it was not gonna happen. And so because she was told it wasn't going to happen, she went ahead and went to med school. She was in medical school. She was also teaching. And she became pregnant by a miracle. And the Lord spoke to her and told her she was having a girl. Well, her husband, George, came into the room one night and he says, Pam, I just need to tell you, the Lord showed me that you're having a boy. And she said, really? Well, we'll see who the true prophet is because God told me we're having a girl. He said, well, I know what the Lord said. And months later, she had fraternal twins, a boy and a girl. So according to the word of God to Rebecca, she had twins, but these were two distinct boys, two peoples, two nations, two absolutely different personalities. One who was always first and getting for himself, and one who hated coming in second. Two different pursuits. One who was restless and always seeking what he wanted outside the promises of God, outside his home. And one who took care of all the responsibilities of his parents' household, shepherding, farming, management. He stayed with the tents. One who doesn't care about the promises of God, ready to assimilate into Canaan, and the other desperately wanting the promises of God and identity with his grandfather Abraham and what God had promised. One who puts his physical needs above spiritual promises, verses 29 through 34, and the other who capitalized on an opportunity to receive God's blessing. Just as God told Rebecca, it happened. Rebecca's dilemma propelled her to seek the word and will of God. God's 
word to us prepares us and allows us to be active participants in his will. Moving on to Genesis 26, Isaac has been in Beer Lahoirai, but God wants to move him further into the land of promise. And a famine comes to Canaan, a famine that could be absolutely disastrous for Isaac and his household. His animals depend on water and grain. There is no way that Isaac can stay where he is. He has to move on. So Isaac moves into Philistine territory, Gerar. It is in this place that Isaac has his first recorded personal encounter with God. God appears to him and God tells him, do not go to Egypt. Now, Isaac is seeking the directive of God. God, where do you want me? Where do you want me? And God says, I'll tell you where I don't want you. I don't want you in Egypt. Isn't that great? It's like, Lord, give me a husband. I'll tell you who I don't want you to marry. Now that works. One directive. He is to stay and sojourn in Canaan. And God promises to be with him, to bless him, and to give him and his descendants all the land that he swore to Abraham. God then promises that as he gave to Abraham, he will give to Isaac. Verse 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God does not give Isaac specifics. I don't know about you, I love specifics. I'm one of those people that read the directions of how to assemble furniture. I look at all the pictures, but I also read the words. I'm one of those who, before I sew anything, I have to read the whole pattern through and see where I'm going. When my GPS gives me directions, I look at what streets are gonna come next. I'm one of those. You've met me. I'm one of those. I love clarity. I, I had my son, you know, I said, honey, how do I do this on the computer? And he's telling me, he's just telling me but he's using terms that like boot and other things I don't understand. So I said, honey, I wanna show you the way that we did it in the 80s. These are called post notes. Could you just write it, put a number one, number one post-it note for, you know, and step one. Number two post-it note. I even have different colors, honey, if you wanna use those. He's just looking at me like, I can't believe we're even related. I do not speak computer. I just don't. God is not giving Isaac specifics. Simply don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land. These are the only directives. But God is going to use this to show Isaac how he guides and how he leads into his will. God uses this famine a shortage of food to move Isaac away from where he was settled, Bier Leroy, to where he wants him to go. In the same way, it is often through shortages, deficits, that God shows us where he wants us. Sometimes it's, we have this apartment that we love, but the people say, you know what? We're gonna redecorate. It's not for you anymore. It could be a job 
it could it could be um, it just your landlady wants to move back in her house. I remember living in England, and we had this house. We'd really settled in. We'd lived there for eighteen months. Uh, our landlord loved us. We paid our rent on time. Before we lived there, it had been broken into, and so the wife was like, I'll never live there again, ever. But she came, he brought her in because he liked the way I decorated the house. So she came in to see, and in the car on the way home, she says, I want the house back. I want, I, there's a good feeling. The good feeling is back in the house. She didn't know it was the Spirit of the Lord and only was with us, but she wanted the house back. And I remember all of a sudden, we had to move. And we didn't want to move. We had settled in. But then God had the cutest little cottage on Casillas Road for us. It was so much better, even though it was smaller than that house. It was more convenient. It was, it was such a blessed house. Um, the neighbor uh, wanted to hear all about Jesus after we moved. They would have us over. They would come to our house with a glass of wine and said, Cheryl, darling, what was it you were telling me about Jesus the other day? We just knew God wanted us in this other house. And he had his ways of doing it. And it was, you know, what seemed in some ways like a disaster, a difficulty, was actually God directing us. In Gerar, Isaac becomes concerned that Rebecca's beauty will cost his life. Funny how this man can have this incredible and personal encounter with God and then believe he's gonna die because his wife is so beautiful. Of course, I know Brian's had that problem more than once, but we won't talk about this. It's not about me. I can't see it with me, but I could see it with my dad a little bit and my mom. She's so gorgeous still. But he tells the men that Rebecca is his sister. Then Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looks out a window and just happens to see Isaac caressing Rebecca and thinks, that's a little more than brotherly love. <laughs> and Abimelech calls Isaac and rebukes him and puts a protective bounty on his head. Now Isaac has a protected status. None of the men of Gerar can touch him. Isaac prospers in Gerar. And boy, would it be tempting to settle in Gerar when all his crops are bringing a hundredfold and he has protect, protected status, his animals are increasing, and he has more in his household, in employees and servants than ever before. Oh, this seems like this must be the blessed place. Why? Because how often do we base the will of God on the blessings, the peace, the, the prosperity, but that's not the way to know the will of God. I had somebody call me and they said, you know, Cheryl, I've got some questions about, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? And I, as she was speaking to me, I said, listen, I can give you a hundred reasons why you should. And she's like, oh. And I said, I can give you another hundred why you shouldn't. Oh. I said, but at the end of the day, you can weigh out all the pros and cons. But God doesn't use pros and cons, does he? He has his will. And sometimes his will looks absolutely ridiculous. It's all cons and no pros. If I do that, I might die. It, it, it doesn't look like it. I remember when we moved to England, taking our kids out of a Christian school, going on a, 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 you know, having for the first time in our lives, Brian and I 
were in the black and had a savings account. It felt so good. And moving to England meant an end to all of that. Uh, it just everything. We had a house. We had a, a church that was substantial, that loved us. And yet, we felt so much that God is saying, pick up everything, move to a country that you do not know, that you're unfamiliar with, and start a church. It was crazy. I mean, no offense, but Calvary Chapel Vista, I hope the same for Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, got voted best church in Vista three years in a row. And our, our mayor was Mormon and she loved us. We had so much favor. But when it comes to the will of God, it's not about prosperity. It's about the will of God. And it cannot be measured or discerned by pros and cons, but only by actively seeking it. As he's there, the men of Gerar become envious. But what of it? Isaac has protected status. Abimelech becomes intimidated by Isaac's might and success. And Abimelech Abimelech calls Isaac in and says, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Rejection is so hard and we take it so personally, don't we? Later, Isaac will say, what are you doing here to Abimelech? I thought you hated me. Rejection is so hard, yet God will use rejection to get us away from the wrong people in the wrong place. We want to leave on our own initiative without being told, but sometimes we need that push that only rejection can bring. <laughs> Hello? It's rejection. Rejection can bring, not ring, but I just thought of the other. After all, Isaac was enjoying great prosperity in Gerar. The last thing he would want or conclude was that God wanted to move him on. Now, Isaac doesn't move too far away. He moves to the Valley of Gerar. This is probably about three miles out of Gerar. Since water is an essential, he goes to where his father Abraham had been. And he sends his servants to dig up the wells that Abraham had first dug. Why? Because Abraham, by digging those wells, how had established water rights. Therefore, Isaac had a right to that well. But this first well brings him in conflict with the herdsmen of Gerar, and there is a quarrel. So he names it Isaac, strife. Do you know what naming it means? It means he's taking authority over it. It means he's saying, I'm not a victim of this, but I'm moving on. Isn't that great? I'm not a victim of this quarrel. I'm not moving because I'm a victim. I am moving because I don't want to quarrel. Isaac does not put up resistance or fight, even though the well is his by right. He moves on. His servants dig another well somewhere in the Valley of Gerar, and another quarrel ensues. And Isaac names this well Sitna or Enmity. But again, he names it. He puts a name to it. He takes authority over it. His servants dig another well, moving on further. And at this one, there's no quarrel. So they call it Rehoboth, meaning God has made room for us. 
or prepared this place for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land, verse 22. From there, Isaac and his entourage moved to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is about 17 miles away from Gerar. It's the first place that Abraham built an altar. Now, Isaac so far has been redigging, redigging his grandfather's wells. But when he comes to Beersheba, he doesn't first redig his grandfather's well. He rebuilds his grandfather's altar. And it's in this place, after building that altar, for the second time God appears to Isaac, this time at night. It's almost as if God is saying, welcome, I've been waiting for you to arrive. And God reiterates his promise to Abraham that now belongs to Isaac. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. After all Isaac has been through, the departures, the delays, the deficits, the dilemmas, the difficulties, the denunciations and disagreements, God is saying, don't be afraid. It's over. You've arrived. And this is when Isaac builds his first and only recorded altar to God. Here is a place that Isaac is reclaiming for God. He is proclaiming the God of Abraham over the land of Baal. He is saying this land belongs to God. Isaac calls on the name of the Lord, worships. Isaac pitches his tent, settles in this place. News follows from his servants that they have discovered water. You see, first the appearance of God, first the word of God, next the altar, next the water. Isaac had it out of the wrong order. He thought first the water, then the word of God. Then, then the altar. But God is showing them first the word of God, then the altar, then the well. This means that Isaac can settle in and down. There is water for crops, company, and animals. This is the second confirmation of God's will, the first being his encounter with God. A third confirmation follows. Here comes, look who's coming. Mm-hmm. Here comes Abimelech with a Huzat. No doubt, Ahuza, it says a friend. We, commentators believe this is a friend of Isaac's. And Abimelech's saying, look, I've got your friend. It's gonna be peace because he's also coming with the call, the commander of his army. But what he wants is a covenant of peace with Isaac. So he brings the commander of his army saying, see, my commander's here. He's entering into this covenant too, that we will not do you any harm. He agrees to it too. And as long as you do not do us any harm either. Why does Abimelech now want a treaty, a covenant with Isaac? Because he has seen God's blessing on Isaac. Isn't that amazing? So many times when we look on our own life, we only see the trials and the deficits and the hardships. But others are looking on going, wow. I can see God's blessing. He got you out of that. He got you out of this. He got you out of that. Abimelech doesn't see the hatred, the dismissal, the rejection, or the quarrels, the moves. In all these things, 
that Isaac has been through. Abimelech testifies, we have certainly seen the Lord is with you. You are now blessed of the Lord. It was by the peace. It was by the refusing uh, to assert his rights. It was in these things that Abimelech sees the hand and blessing of God. Isaac through a somewhat unexpected and circuitous route has come to the very place God intended for him. In contrast, in chapter 26, it ends with Esau's intentional removal of himself from the will of God. We already saw at the end of chapter 25 how he chose, how he chose um, the stew over his birthright. And now we see that instead of waiting, as Isaac did, to have the wife of covenant, he just chooses Canaanite women. Remember Abraham, how important it was to grandfather Abraham that Isaac not marry a woman from Canaan? And yet Esau goes out and he gets himself two wives. With Esau, we see this pattern the same pattern that we see with Eve, the pattern of sin, take, you see it, see and take for yourself. See and take for yourself. So Esau went outside, hunted, saw, and took for himself. Esau, the Canaanite woman, he sees them, he takes for himself. He is intentional with his removal of himself from the promises and will of God. Here is one who cares more about his needs, his desires, and wants his needs and his desires fulfilled his way, his timing. Esau does not wait for his parents or God to find him the covenant wife. Even as he hunted for game, he hunts in Canaan for women to be his wife. And these wives of Esau, make Rebecca and Isaac's lives miserable. Um, when Char was about 10 or 11, Kristen came home from school, just fit to be tied. Kristen being my oldest daughter, his older sister, and says, Char has got a girlfriend. And I said, oh, really, who is it? And when he told me, I, you know, I was like, uh-oh, because I... She had been in trouble a lot at this school. And Kristen said, Mom, this girl is not right for Char. I said, okay, I'll take it from here. 10 or 11. I said, can we talk? She said, sure, Mom. He has that total guilty look. Char could not help. You know, you could look at his face and go, okay, what did you do wrong today? He just had one of those faces like, hi. <laughs> you know, guilt. It was like guilt, guilt, like a neon sign. So I said, let's just sit down. I remember sitting outside our house on the curb. And I said, I want to read you a scripture. <laughs> so I read him this scripture. And, Rebecca, uh, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebecca. <laughs> I said, Char, your choice of girlfriend doesn't just affect you. It's going to affect dad, and it's going to affect me. So I want you, whenever that time comes that you feel like you want a girlfriend, to choose wisely. He goes, did Kristen tell you? I said, yes. He goes, okay, mom. I wasn't feeling a piece about it anyway. And, you know, 
that's good. Do you want the will of God for your life? If you want the will of God, then be assured that God will lead you right to the very center of it. The very things that might make you think that you are out of his will are the very instruments that God is using to put you into his will. Once you submit the departures, the delays, the deficits, the dilemmas, the difficulties, the dissensions, the denunciations and disagreements, once you give them over to God, they become the very instruments that God will use to make sure that you are in the center of his will. You know, sometimes we have an idea of what the ministry is that God has for us and how we're going to do that ministry. We've got it all written for God. And something happens that seems to throw us way off course. I had a friend, I had, she's still my friend, so I shouldn't say past tense, and she's still walking, living, breathing. But she, um, she had this incident happen to her. She was supposed to speak at these homeschool uh, conventions, and she saw how her life was going. And something beyond her control happened, and all of a sudden she was associated with a community that she never, ever would naturally associate herself with. And all of a sudden she was being denounced on Facebook like you would never, ever believe. The homeschooling convention canceled her, didn't want anything else to do with her. I mean, it was terrible, the onslaught. I remember um, she asked Kathy Gilbert to pray. And Kathy Gilbert says, if I'm praying, Cheryl's praying because she always brings me into these prayer times. So Kathy called me up and we prayed together. And then I had a chance to meet with this woman and go out to coffee with her. And I said to her, you know what? God has just put you in a mission field that you never expected. And probably a mission field that you didn't particularly want. But nevertheless, it's your mission field. It's not because you've sinned, because you haven't. But this is now the place that God has for you. I have um, another friend who found out she had cancer. And she said to me, this isn't the mission field that I ever wanted. But it's the mission field that God gave me. And I intend to use it for a mission field. I remember when my dad had lung cancer. And he had to go for his chemotherapy appointments. And I went with him. And it was, um, these men started talking. And my dad was really quiet, just kind of, when dad was in pain, he wouldn't speak. And he would kind of go into himself. And he was just kind of there. And I could tell, um, I was sitting right across from him, that he just needed Pepina. And I remember sitting in that room waiting for the chemotherapy and knowing that all of the people in this room, with the exception of myself, had a death sentence. And these two men were talking, and for some strange reason, I just joined into the conversation. And somehow, by the Spirit of God, I was able to lead the conversation to Jesus. One of them was a very famous writer um, in Orange County. And I was able just to do it. And I remember leading the conversation to Jesus. And this man, for the first time in his life, said, I'm open for the first time in my life. And I looked at dad. I felt my dad used to like to play volleyball. And we would play um, 
the two of us on a team. And I was the setter. He'd take the first ball, then he would send it to me, and I would set it above the net so my dad could spike it. And we were the dream team. And I felt that day that I had just gotten the ball and I just was setting it to my dad. And I remember that he looked up and the spirit of the Lord came on my dad and he began to tell these men about Jesus and told them that he planned on seeing Jesus very soon and was confident and sure of the hope he held. It was majestic. At that moment, I remember thinking, there's no place I'd rather be than right here in this office with this company of men who will soon see Jesus. It was so amazing. That was not the mission field my dad ever, ever saw him in. And you know how he got there? By disaster, by deficit of health. God took him into that room to lead those men to Jesus Christ. It wasn't the mission field he wanted. Friends, departures, delays, deficits, dilemmas, difficulties, including natural disasters, dissension, denunciations, disagreements. This does not say you are out of the will of God, that, that God is prodding you gently maybe even forcibly, right smack dab into his will, into the place he has for you, a place that you would never go naturally, a place that you would never imagine yourself being. However, as you submit each of these things to him, seeking his directives, he will turn these deadly deeds into his perfect design for your life his goodwill. Remember, Isaac did not disobey God. Isaac did not try to dissuade Abimelech or defend his rights. Instead, he sought the direction and will of God. God's will is good. And it is the place where he can reiterate his promises to you and use you to claim the land for him proclaim his word, refresh you, provide for you, and give you an undeniable witness before the enemy, before the non-believer. God can give you a testimony. God's will is good, and you will not miss the will of God unless you intentionally want to. And I don't think there's anyone in here who would say, I don't want the will of God. I think you're here on a Friday morning just because you do. I know you do, and I know that you are going to be in the will of God and that the place that you're in right now is God's will for you, to give you a ministry, maybe to people you never thought you'd be ministering to. Maybe it's not what you imagined yourself. You thought you had the picket fence, white picket fence, two cars in the garage, stable husband ministry. Mm -mm. You've got the sojourner's ministry. But just know that all of these things are God's way of saying, my beloved, I want you in my will and I want to use you for my highest glory and your highest good. God's will is good. And he wants to get you into that will. Let's stand up.
You know, I honestly did not want the ministry of the stressed back this week. I did not want, you know, but how could I get up and tell you that God uses this if my back's not out, if smoke detectors aren't going off in my house, the dog isn't trying to climb into bed with us and my daughter's not in false labor. If I just got up and said, well, you know, you might have these things, but not me. <laughs> you know, God uses these things. I remember our car breaking down in England and we got in there all ready to go to church on a Sunday morning and Brian hit the thing and it went doo doo. Didn't even go like, <laughs> like I'm trying. It just went doo doo, like nothing. Mm -mm, I'm not doing anything. So we called this mechanic. He comes over to our house the next morning. He gets in the car and he turns it and the car goes boom, boom. Like, I don't know what your problem is. You know, I just don't like Americans. And, and this guy said, Brian, he says, it sounds fine to me. And Brian says, I don't get it. And he goes, well, what, what were you doing? He goes, well, I was going to church. Why were you doing that? Brian says, well, I'm a pastor. Brian shared the gospel with this guy. And the guy goes, I've got this question. Why is an apple sin? And Brian's like, what? And Brian's like, an apple's not sin. That's not the issue at all. And when he explained it to this guy, he goes, I get it. I'll get it. I'll get it now. I'll get it. I'll get why we need Jesus. I mean, it was crazy. It wasn't the mission field that Brian wanted. We wanted the mission field of the great working car on Sunday morning. That's not the mission field we got. God's got you smacked out in his will. These things are, are just God's way of keeping you there, making sure your will gets right where it's supposed to do between the grids so you can get that great car wash. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Maybe you've had some of these things going on, the deficits, the difficulties. Um, maybe you know, the enemy's trying to say, you're out of the will of God. You're not really love. I, if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I just want to know I'm not alone. Hallelujah, I'm not alone. And there's a lot of you. Will you take that thing that's made you think that you're not in the will of God? And will you just give it to God and say, Lord, use this as a directive in my life. Just hold it out to God. Use this as a directive to get me right in the center of your goodwill, to show me where my mission field is, where the place is that you want me to be, that I will have the greatest testimony. Keep me in this place. Keep me in this place. Lord, as you see these hands, Lord, and, and you know these things that have been goading us, these things that we thought were not of you, these places that you want to use to put us in the center of your will. Lord, we thank you for the delays and the departures and the difficulties and these hard places because you said in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Lord, we recognize these things as ways to get us into your will. Lord, show us the glory of the place that you have for us and what you have for us. Lord, help us not to misinterpret you any longer, but to rest in you, to glory in you, and to know that you are leading us into the good place and the good land where we can be most effective for you, for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.